We believe superintelligence, AI vastly smarter than humans, could be developed within the next 10 years. Yay? The newest therapies for Alzheimer's disease, monoclonal antibodies, lecanemab and donanemab, have now been approved in Britain. Hundreds of Australians are buying compounded versions of Azempic for weight loss. You do not want to land in hot water over something like this. 23andMe admits hackers accessed 6.9 million users DNA relatives data. The food safety regulator in that country says meat grown from cells is safe to eat. There is no quicker way to look like an absolute fool on the internet than to make predictions about the future. But today we're going to go back and do exactly that. Welcome back to the Biolab Collective with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack and on this podcast we talk about the business of science and how the latest headlines in science and tech informs the jobs of the future. And believe it or not, it's only been a year since I've started doing this podcast. Over the course of 30 episodes, I'm bound to have some swings and misses. And today is a fun round episode, the boldest predictions I made over the past 12 months are Nostradamus or a Nostra fail. Big news this year around the discovery and testing of two new Alzheimer's drugs all the way back in June and July, I believe I made some predictions around what were going to be the biggest difficulties in rolling these drugs out to become as part of business as usual in treating Alzheimer's disease. But can be is priced at US $26,500 for a year's supply of IVs that you administer every two weeks. Medicare, which cares for 60 million seniors, has a large percentage of them at risk of Alzheimer's or certainly curious about this drug and might want to sign up for it. If we have to bankroll that from our tax dollars, 26 and a half US thousand dollars for one year's supply, that is going to be a lot of investment for a drug that we're not sure is convincing in terms of its ability to treat Alzheimer's disease. The drug in people with early or mild disease, using a scale measuring memory, thinking of other basic skills, after 18 months, so it's not a one-off, it's not like a pill or a, a syringe and you're fixed, you're cured, you got to undergo this IV therapy every two weeks for 18 months. Those who received Lakembi as opposed to a placebo, their memory declined more slowly. How much more slowly? A difference of less than half the point on the memory scale and some Alzheimer's experts say that the delay is likely too subtle for the patients or their families to notice. Short-term memory loss, repeatedly saying the same things, having vagueness in everyday conversation, losing the ability to plan or problem solve or do routine tasks in a slower way and also some language difficulty, disorientation and this is the big one for family members if there is a change of behavior, personality or mood. The problem with all of this is that diagnosing Alzheimer's disease as you can tell from those list of symptoms, is quite imprecise. There is no single test currently available to diagnose Alzheimer's disease, and it is almost a disease of exclusion once you've excluded all the other possibilities that are associated with those signs and symptoms. And the physician normally needs to take medical history, physical exam, blood and urine tests, and in some cases, the cerebral spinal fluid, as well as psychiatric and neuropsychological tests and brain scans if it comes to that. Quite a delay when people first experience symptoms to when they then get the right diagnosis for Alzheimer's, that delay could really slow down their access to this therapy, which again works best in early onset cases of Alzheimer's. Did I turn out to be right? These drugs have now been approved in Britain, but the catch is the condition must first be diagnosed. The Lecanemab is recently approved in US and Japan. Denanemab is expected to be following the footsteps of Lecanemab soon with, I think, the same pathway that is targeting at the molecular level in the brain. After decades of research, these are the first drugs to improve patients' lives directly, but the use is primarily limited to those who are very early in the condition. This highlights how difficult it may be to access diagnosis and treatment to Alzheimer's if the diagnostic 
processes aren't very familiar to either family members or the person who's potentially suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia and having regular checkups with the GP is kind of the only way that you could potentially highlight how early you could diagnose this disease. How much should this be subsidized by taxpayers? Because right now they're very, very expensive. The Kenamab costs $25,000 a year and it's given via regular intravenous infusion. So you can't just do it at home by yourself. You need to go to a doctor. There'll be additional fees associated with that. If you don't administer these intravenous infusions correctly, you can lead to brain swelling and all sorts of very dangerous side effects. You need to find the space and time to put someone in an infusion suite to treat them. You can only receive these very expensive treatments, especially if any portion of that fee is subsidized by the taxpayer once it's been diagnosed. So really a greater effort in diagnosis, prevention is better than cure, so the saying goes, would go a long way in making this a reality for Alzheimer's patients. Or the crazy shenanigans around artificial intelligence and open AI specifically moving and changing its CEOs, its collaborations with Microsoft, and I made some predictions around that rather interesting relationship. Microsoft hires former OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. In the events leading up to all of those sequences of hiring and firing and rehiring, and they removed their successors and found different CEOs and named interim CEOs and replaced them with other CEOs. So right now it's the uh, 21st of November at the time of recording, 2023, 738 out of OpenAI's around 770 employees have signed a letter saying that they blame the board of coordinating a coup against Altman and they will quit unless Sam Altman rejoins the company. What we do know is Microsoft has left this situation in a much healthier place than it was before, which is very interesting. Microsoft was already an investor in OpenAI. Everyone's calling it an ingenious move, a hostile takeover. Satya Nadella says we remain committed to our partnership with OpenAI and have confidence in our product roadmap and our ability to continue to innovate. Of course, he would have confidence in his ability to innovate. And I'm not really sure what the antitrust regulators will say about this rather monopolistic effort that Microsoft has taken on. But they're certainly not new to this idea of a monopoly, certainly not a stranger to antitrust lawsuits. At the end of 2023 in December. This is the state of AI. OpenAI and Microsoft, they are very close bedfellows. The link between these two companies are going to be examined by a competition watchdog, given that OpenAI is supposedly an independent company, but Microsoft is now on its board. This has monopoly or potential monopolistic problems all over it. Ilya Sutskeva, who is one of the people on the board of OpenAI who decided to fire Sam Altman, and I guess potentially rehire him as well, their team at OpenAI built a tool to to combat the inevitability, in their opinion, of a superhuman AI that could take over. And this rather uh, daunting graphic shows the difference between a traditional relationship between AI and humans. The human is a supervisor and the AI is a student versus a super alignment where the student is so much more powerful than the human that that relationship is going to tip over into the student becoming the master. Their tools ensure a superhuman AI is not able to turn against humans. We believe super intelligence AI vastly smarter than humans could be developed within the next 10 years, says OpenAI. Figuring out how to align future superhuman AI systems to be safe has never been more important, and it is now easier than ever to make empirical progress on this problem. Yay? Is that a good thing? The fact that they're working on superhuman AI and they're now working on tools to make sure superhuman AI does not go rogue. Google DeepMind also recently announced Gemini, its new AI model that's a direct competitor for OpenAI's chat GPT. Elon Musk on Twitter has launched Grok, which is a serious threat to chat GPT. According to Bloomberg, it excels where some rivals lag. It summarizes the news in real time. Shuffling at the top, corporate shenanigans, new competitors rising around every corner, potential threat of superhuman AI tools, but there are counter 
amount of tools that have been developed to combat these superhuman AI tools. It's all a big mess heading into 2024. I'm sure there'll be new headlines that will make us even more nervous in the new year. In many ways, 2023, in terms of health at least, was the year of Ozempic. Initially found to be useful for patients with diabetes as a way to manage blood sugar levels and it was an injection. But it had an off-label use where it can have this indirect impact on weight loss. It mimics GLP-1, which is a naturally occurring hormone that could monitor and lower blood sugar over an extended period of time, but it also had this indirect benefit of weight loss. And people have been scrambling to use Ozempic, even if you don't have diabetes. We talked about how Ozempic was going to start this black market frenzy of Ozempic alternatives. You take it and you pretty much just never feel hungry and you can lose a stack of weight just because it's an appetite suppressant. That has led to a rage of influencers talking about it and therefore massive global shortages in Ozempic. <laughs> and I saw on the latest Oscars broadcast, the host was making a joke and he was saying, oh, you all look great, the Ozempic and the plastic surgery must be working. So it's really cut through. Yeah. Shortage has led to people looking for Ozempic and maybe paying black market prices for Ozempic. I'm not really <laughs> sure. The TGA has issued a safety alert after pharmacies who can make these drugs compound and essentially do a non-commercially branded version of Ozempic, they're using loopholes to make Ozempic replicas and people are able to access the molecular equivalent of Ozempics at these compounding pharmacies. Hundreds of Australians are buying compounded versions of Ozempic for weight loss and these compounding pharmacies are producing replicas and shipping them to customers around Australia. The regulators have indeed issued warnings. Still, the patients think it's a good outcome. Compounding medicines in Australia is intended to help pharmacists give individual patients access to medication that is in shortage or not available and it is exempt from normal regulatory approval processes. This exemption actually is not intended to supply drugs on a mass scale due to high demand and I'm pretty sure this loophole will be closed in the near future, especially as Ozempic is expected to remain in short supply until December 2024 in Australia, full calendar year from the point that I'm recording the podcast. The TGA is really warning consumers that these compounded semaglutide drugs have not been assessed for safety, quality, and efficacy. And this trend, they're going to start clamping down on this loophole that is unclosed for the time being. But what happens when these compounding pharmacies make a drug that isn't to the same standard and the patient gets sick or they get very, very ill or die from taking the drug? Who's liable in that situation? Well, the TJ warns that it could land pharmacists in particular in hot water because the compounding exemption in the therapeutics good regulation does not apply if a pharmacist is compounding products for bulk supply in anticipation of a patient's need. Pharmacists may be exposed to liability if the patient has a negative outcome, especially if a TGA-approved product is available to treat the patient's medical conditions. So not only is it buyer beware, it is pharmacist and practitioner beware. You do not want to land in hot water over something like this. If there's one thing I want you to take away from all of the headlines that we'll talk about today, you've got to follow the money. The reason that these loopholes are being taken advantage of and that compounding pharmacies are mass producing a black market as Empic is because there is a demand for it. If there's no demand for it, then science and tech very rarely gets off the ground. Innovation for innovation's sake very rarely makes an impact on our everyday lives. And all of these stories have that in common. And this holds true to the very origin of treatment of weight loss and treatment of diabetes. If you look at the initial discovery of Insulin, the first treatment that changed how diabetes is considered and viewed by people in the medical community. Insulin was discovered by Sir Frederick G. Banting, Charles H. Best, and J.J.R. McLeod. 
This is an interesting article linked from Diabetes UK. It goes through the history of how they actually made that scientific discovery. But what I really want you to pay attention to is what happened at the end of the story. After insulin was discovered, it started to be mass produced in 1922-1923. On the 23rd of January 1923, Banting, Collip and Best were awarded US patents on insulin and the method to make it. They sold these patents to the University of Toronto for one dollar each. In case you're wondering, that's very, very cheap, even accounting for inflation. That is still a tremendous discount because they believed insulin does not belong to me. It belongs to the world. And because of these very cheap patents, insulin starts to be produced at a mass scale very, very cheaply. Eli Lilly became the first manufacturer to mass produce insulin and they began shipping the first commercial supply of insulin. I'm not sure if the University of Toronto licensed that patent for also a dollar. I'm guessing University of Toronto took a cut of that commercial windfall. What that did mean is these scientists won a Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine in 1923. Sounds like a feel-good story, right? Not until you read the next story from the conversation, the discovery of insulin, a story of monstrous egos and toxic rivalries. When Frederick Banting's phone rang one morning in October 1923, it was the call that every scientist must dream of receiving. An excited friend asked him if he'd seen the morning newspapers, and a friend told him that Banting had just been awarded a Nobel Prize for his discovery of insulin. Banting told his friend to go to hell and slam the receiver down. He had been awarded the Nobel Prize, but so too had his boss, John McCloyd, and this is a tale of monstrous egos, toxic career rivalries, and injustices. So these people who made the discovery hated each other and hated that the other person got more credit or got equal credit. Sounds like a huge expose. When I read this headline, my first instinct was, duh, of course. Scientists are filled with ego, especially scientists operating the highest tier of innovation. Doesn't always have to be displayed, but it all too often is. I'll save you the hip by hip, blow by blow, gory details of their inter academic tensions and toxicity, but a few highlights if you like. In 1921, Banting and Best were working in a laboratory making pancreatic extracts, testing their effects on the blood sugar levels of diabetic dogs. Really, really grating work. McCloy was away in the summer, and McCloy was a bit of a jerk about it. He says, look, your results are not great. There's no appropriate controls. They could not agree on more lab space and the university wasn't playing ball, wasn't giving the resources he wanted. He stormed out, he raged, threatened to leave. Again, very, very common. And they tried to present their work in public at a formal scientific conference. The presentation was a disaster. Banting's presentation was overawed and he did not present it well and McCloyd stepped in at the last minute to give the presentation. This is another reason why soft skills is really important in science. The most rigorous, brilliant scientist in the laboratory doing the experiment, if you can't present it well, if you don't have a good sales department, if you don't know how to talk about your work in a relatable way, no one will connect the discovery to you unless you've got receipts. And indeed, this case, Banting did have receipts. He was named on the Nobel Prize after all. So it's not a total disregard for his contributions. And it would appear from the record books that McCloyd was a bit better at these soft skills of communication. When he stepped in, took over the presentation, Banting thought this was a coup. McCloyd was trying to rob him of the credit and to rub salt into the wound that happened in front of the most eminent doctors in the field and Banting thought insulin was slipping from his grasp. So this is just a small insight into just how poisonous these kinds of working relationships can be. You don't have to have a perfect working relationship to be very productive. Shaq and Kobe, if you're an NBA fan, had one of the most toxic professional relationships ever. They were very productive on the court, winning three championships together. But this is also very, very common in science. They were obsessed with legacy and they weren't happy sharing the Nobel Prize and Banting was upset and furious that McCloyd was co-recipient 
of the Nobel Prize. I think about this all the time. I think, look, what if you just sold the patent for more than a dollar? Wouldn't all of this be a little easier to swallow? If you had more than one dollar to show for your breakthrough, you wouldn't be reliant and at the mercy of these assessment panels for Nobel Prizes or university budgets. You would have much more autonomy over your work and over how you perceive the next discovery because maybe you could have gone on to do the next discovery. You could have used the money to fund another lab. Demand drives innovation. Money and resources are needed, certainly in the modern day, to provide the fuel and form momentum for innovation. And that fuel for innovation is certainly there for Azempic. It does not work the same in everybody. Some people taking Azempic will lose a lot of weight, others may not. There's some call for genomic studies in the people where Azempic doesn't work on them to find out exactly what's going on. Also, as soon as you come off Azempic, the weight comes back. So it is a life sentence of taking this drug. Not to mention it's an injection, so it's a little fussy. The data around the safety of Azempic, I think the long-term use and the widespread use of Azempic will come out pretty soon. I think in 2024, we'll start seeing these studies as the massification, the mass scale prescription of Azempic becomes a reality, especially as shortages start to wane. I'm on the record as a bit of a suspicious skeptic when it comes to apps and companies hoarding any kind of personal data, let alone genetic data. Your data that you're entering into these mental health apps might be leaked. If you've listened to the podcast previously, we've talked about how any big provider, any big institution with any kind of data that is valuable will be hacked at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's more about transparency of what data they have access to. Should you be having that information in the first place? And what are you doing with that information as a part of routine practice that's more concerning? This article is from the Scientific American talking about the terrifying nature of 23andMe is not because of the accuracy of the testing, but it is about the kind of data that these companies are collecting. It is to hoard your personal data. So again, this is back in 2013. So this is a decade ago. And let's look back at the predictions this article made 10 years ago. Fast forward to today to see how many of those predictions are actually correct. The access to personal genomic biological data was the real gold mine here. The personal genome service is meant to be a front end for a massive information gathering operation against an unwitting public. Again, this guy's a writer. So very, very dramatic in their setup of the stage. Does this sound paranoid? 23andMe and Admits hackers accessed 6.9 million users' DNA relatives' data. There was a data breach. Data breaches are all the rage this year. Every big company has had a data hack. The data belonged to 6.9 million users. All of that data is accessible to hackers. 23andMe confirmed user information was up for sale on the dark web. It was investigating a hacker's claims that they leaked 4 million genetic profiles from people in Great Britain and the wealthiest people living in the US and Western Europe. And 23andMe are trying to notify users whose data has been leaked. One of the users who had its data hacked is US National Security Agency Cybersecurity Director Rob Joyce. The cybersecurity expert has an opinion that the hack was much worse than Tony and Three and me are admitting, and there is much more salacious details to come. This was inevitable, right? The question is not if they'll be hacked, it's when they will be hacked. Why did it have all this genetic information to begin with? This is, of course, based upon the demand that people have for their own genetic curiosity. What diseases may I have in the future that my DNA will tell me? What is my ancestry made up of? Who am I related to? Am I related to royalty? Or am I related to thieves or pirates? All very interesting. And there was a genuine economic demand for the service. What they were charging users to do a DNA test was nowhere near enough to cover the cost of their ultimate ambitions. 23andMe were essentially using the funds generated by all of these user tests and their DNA samples to create these drug screening laboratories that were selling these targets to Big Pharma to develop drugs because it had 
access to way, way more DNA than any other company had. That was the real source of value for the company, not the 99 bucks it was charging people to send in their DNA swab and get the result back. People now are waking up to the fact that this is a very, very sneaky practice and they cannot guarantee the security of the data because no one can. And in Australia, we have a real problem around how protected patients are with respect to our genetic privacy, especially when it comes to health insurance. This article linked in the show notes talk about the price of life, genetic testing results, and the cost of insurance in Australia. Thanks to a loophole in discrimination laws, life insurers in Australia can adjust or refuse cover based on genetic test results. In Australia, the federal government announced a consultation into the use of genetic testing and how this connects to life insurance underwriting. And this is a very new consultation process. A lot of legal experts have been trying to bring this issue to the forefront, submitting to a parliamentary inquiry in 2017. Right now, as of the end of 2023, we are still not protected in Australia if you go and do a genetic test and your health insurer finds out about it. Your premiums could go up or your life insurance policies could be denied altogether. And right now, genetic information can't be put back in the box. Once you have a test, you know you're at risk and that risk exists forever. My personal argument is still those tests are very valuable to have, especially if you have a family history of the disease for say cancer, if you've got a family history of cancer. But right now you're very much in financial peril from the insurance perspective if you go and do this very sensible thing. So hopefully Australia and the regulators wake up, protect consumers with more rigorous regulations and legislation. This year, LabGrowMe also entered people's radar as the initial rounds of approval for safety were rolling out. And I did have a hot take around why I think LabGrow Meat is not going to succeed and it wasn't actually around safety. Claim of it being more ethical or more sustainable meat that's grown in a lab rather than meat that is taken from animal is quite questionable because to grow cells in a flask or in a metal vat like these startups are claiming to do both labor intensive resource intensive in terms of the energy required to run those metal vats those incubators the chemicals needed to keep those cells alive all of that takes so much energy and planning and troubleshooting and experimenting these are startups after all so many of them will fail especially when the reagent are so expensive, I don't think you can make the claim that it's actually better or more sustainable. Looks like chicken and smells like chicken. Well, it take off because you can invest all this money and make oodles of this meat, but if consumers don't view it as the same, they won't be willing to partake. And that industry, that sector will never have the enough capital to be able to take it to the next level. Was it a hot take or was it just reality? And everyone was very curious about A, what it would taste like or what it's covered in, or is it gonna be the start of the zombie apocalypse? It's probably gonna be relatively safe all things considered. It's just amino acids. It's just cultured in a dish, but really there's no crazy chemicals in it. My take on it was it's going to be too expensive. Culturing cells in a lab costs thousands and thousands of dollars for it to become scalable. So you can buy a burger that's made of lab cultured meat. That is still very, very far into the future. As this article from Just Food really highlights, the road to lab grown meats mass commercialization remains a very long one. The nascent cultivated meat industry is slow because investor appetite and geopolitical instability hampers efforts to commercialize the products on a wider scale. Despite the investment in this sector where they've driven the cost of that patty down to nine pounds or nine euro, nine dollars, whatever it is, the cost of a patty being close to ten dollars, wherever you may be in the world, that's too expensive. And if you then add on top of it, hey, this is lab cultured meat, those are not a good combination for economic sustainability. Demand drives innovation. I'm just 
not sure the consumers have a demand for it. Industry will be challenged to deliver sales to consumers and to stretch funding runways to the point of delivering profitability. And these cultivated meat businesses will watch the plant-based meat market carefully because I've seen plant-based meat really roll out in a scalable way this year. In 2024, I'm wondering if that lab-cultured meat sector will come out. All the signs are pointing to this becoming more regular, certainly in Australia, according to the Australian Business Journal, the food safety regulator in that country says meat grown from cells is safe to eat. Sydney-based company Vow has passed the first stage needed to sell the meat to consumers. According to the food regulator, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, eating the cultured quail meat presents no health or nutritional risk. It is genetically stable and bacteria-related risks were very low, but they did highlight the need to put cell cultured on the labeling, and that is where I think it's going to fall down based on all the comments, all the tractions, videos I've made on lab grown meat. People are just terrified of lab grown meat. So labeling it will be probably the first death knell. I'm willing to give it a go. I've got very limited qualms about the safety of it, but I just don't think it will taste the same. That need for the meat to grow in an animal with all the microbiome or the bacteria in its gut, that kind of marinates the meat naturally. And it's very hard to replicate the flavor profile of these meats, but I'm sure all the innovation will make it a little bit more sustainable. I'm not a cheerleader or a naysayer. I'm just a bit of a skeptic. I'm very reluctant to believe this will become a marketable solution in big fast food burger chains but hey you never say never because there are other positive benefits if it, this does become a player in the meat market this article from time makes the case for lab-grown meat. In September 2019, Russian cosmonaut Oleg Skripochka was wearing a white t-shirt and clutching an orange box. Inside that box had cells from a cow blasted into orbit, mixing them with a nutrient soup and adding the mixture into a 3D bioprinter, and they were about to print the first cultivated beef steak ever to be produced in space. They were trying to prove cultivated meat can be produced anytime, anywhere, in any condition. Upside Foods and Good Meat is now able to offer lab-grown meat to the nation's restaurant tables and eventually supermarket shelves. And there's a big opportunity here. Demand will drive innovation. This animal-based meat industry is worth $1.4 trillion, but that also has the indirect or rather direct impact that it releases greenhouse gas emissions from meat, whether it be the animals and their own methane from just living and growing or the factories needed to process the meat and ship the meat. And the hope is that cultivated meat could secure 10% of the meat market by 2030 and hopefully as much as 35% by 2040. They're hoping that cultivated meat could become the renewable energy equivalent of the food sector, having the power to charge consumers plate with meat, but without the downsides. Hopefully in the future, it becomes indistinguishable from animal meat. It could offer the same taste and convenience eventually at a lower price. Again, right now, that is not a lower price. It is $10 for a patty, 10 euro, 10 pounds for a patty. Not very affordable. Hopefully that comes down to one or $2. Cultured meat could present the ability to reduce consumption of conventional meat without taking anything away. I think my batting average is not too bad this year. Not quite 100%, but I'm getting maybe 60-70% in terms of my predictions. There will be some shift in the content strategy for this channel, for this podcast in 2024, but what won't change is the consistency that I'll be delivering the podcast. Maybe I'll miss a week here or there if I get sick, but the plan is to be consistently in your feeds every Monday morning. I have also launched another YouTube channel around the intersections of photography and mental health, Bokeh Therapy, B-O-K-E-H, linked in the show notes below, and you can find that video linked here as well as all of the episodes of the Biolab Collective with Jack Wayne podcast from 2023. I'm Jack, hope to connect with you again in 2024.